those guys and uh, girls for leading us in worship. Also, today is uh, the second Sunday of us relaunching children's uh, ministry. And I just, I want to say that's much harder than we realize. And we need to thank the people who are making that happen. They won't hear you if you clap because they're back there and people have kind of oversaw things. But please let those people know how much you appreciate them. And if you... um, are in a place to contribute to that. I would like for you to contribute to that and it like with your body, like helping with children. Uh, that makes things... If you're not in a place to contribute to that, we can have a conversation. Um, one of the popular comments that people make about the New Testament is they will read of what took place in the church in the book of Acts and they will say something to the effect of man, I wish the church could get back to that. I wish the church would look more like that. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. One person made the reference that you know, it's, it's odd for you to kill off the main character in Luke and then the sequel be even get to Acts chapter 2 and that's kind of what you got. You've got this story of the resurrected Jesus and how the church impacts and affects things. And in Acts chapter 2 and in chapter 4, you see this uh, teaching about what the church looked like. From 50,000 feet, you get this, that the church, if you were to look at it, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. All the believers, they were together and they had everything in common. They they sold their possessions and property and they distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And every day they devoted themselves to the meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate together. They ate their food together with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That is magnificent. That is majestic. That is something that we should really want to be part of if you read a a phrasing like that. What an incredible idea that we would break bread together or whatever else you break in the Gulf of Texas that we would celebrate God together like that. The thing is, when Luke writes this, he's writing about something that's true from afar off. When you get to the epistles of Paul, you notice though all of those things are true, the church is still full of junk. Because people are full of junk. And every, time we, and every time we are to get frustrated with one another, to look around a room and think how someone has wronged us, we should not go and say, oh, man, I just wish things were like the book of Acts. We should look and we should see, wait a second, they kind of are. Because we've moved from 50,000 feet to right there on ground level and we begin to see that human interactions are full of human problems. So we have to address those things. Philippians chapter 4 is where we are this morning. And I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there uh, propped at an angle in the chair that you sat in. Maybe you're using that to support your Lombard area. I'm not sure. Chapter 4, verse 1. So then... 
my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown. This is Paul writing to the church that he liked the best. Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Yodia and I urge Senteca to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also would ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which surpasses all. Through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and it will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, <clears throat> if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Stand firm. I was in middle school, like everyone in the room who is beyond middle school was at some point. In the middle school, I played football. It was the peak of my athletic career. I was a middle school center. I played defensive end and nose tackle from time to time. In the eighth grade, I was on the worst team in our division. We were playing the best team in our division. They had a left tackle named uh, Jeff Stevens. He went by the uh, nickname Shamu. They don't give you the nickname Shamu because you're tiny. And Jeff was in the eighth grade, six foot three, and he weighed 260 pounds. Just a monster. Like he bought cigarettes on the way to the game. <laughs> and I, I remember standing on the football field, and it was my job to block Jeff for the entirety of the game. And I, I got crafty, tried a couple of ninja moves from time to time. Tried the old El Toro where I just got out of the way. And I, I remember my uh, quarterback looking at me and saying, You have to block him. And I replied, What do you think I've been trying to do? When Paul writes in the book of Philippians, he starts and talks about in verse 1 how we are to stand firm in the Lord. Which means that the church at Philippi was facing an all-out assault from everything that surrounded them. Things that were coming against them, pushing against them, forcing against them, fighting against them. They were dealing with what it meant to be exiles in this world. What it meant for their beliefs about this resurrected Messiah to cause conflict for them. And he says to them, remember, you are to stand firm in the Lord. So if we're breaking this text down, because that's what we like to attempt to do here each week, I've got five things that you can see, and all of them start with an R in the passage. Uh, in verse 1, you see that we're called to remain in him. In verses 2 through 3, you see we are to remember what unifies. In verses 4 through 5, we see that we are to rejoice in his closeness or his nearness. 2 7, we are to react with prayer. 
In verses 8 through 9, remind yourself of these things one more time. Remain in him in verse 1. Remember what unifies in 2 and 3. Rejoice in his closeness. React with prayer and remind yourself. That's what we see the text breaking down for us. Paul is writing to this early church who is dealing with Roman opposition. And the reason that they are dealing with Roman opposition is because the church at Philippi and the New Testament church in general was different than anything Rome had ever dealt with. Because whenever Rome would go into an area to make that area their own, they would establish a new kingdom of sorts under what's called the Peace of Rome or the Pax Romana. And when they would establish this new kingdom, it was a very inclusive kingdom. They would absorb you, but they would let you keep your culture. They would let you keep your belief system. They had trouble with the Jewish people and in Judaism. They had even more trouble with Christianity because it was, to their understanding, a, a branch off of Judaism. They were doing everything they could to look at Christianity and say, Hey, we'll let you believe what you believe. But in so doing, what they were dealing with was the church was claiming that they had a king. And Rome's only thing that they would point to you and say was faulty for you was saying that anyone other than Caesar was your king. You didn't get to keep your king. It really wasn't about gods. It was, that was kind of a side note of the conversation. It was about kingship. It was about lordship. Yet the Roman people are looking at Christianity. The church at Philippi. The church at Ephesus. And these various churches we see in the New Testament. And the claim that they were instructed to make based on the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Paul as he wrote these letters was. You have a king. And, if, and your king is Jesus. So, obviously, you should honor the government. But the king that you serve is Jesus. We look into this passage and we see that the Romans were unable to Romanize Christianity, so they adapted. Here's a quote that I read to my life group last week. It's anonymous because if I said it, I would take credit. The gospel came to the Greeks and the Greeks turned it into a philosophy. The gospel came to the Romans and the Romans, they turned it into a system. The gospel came to the Europeans and the Europeans turned it into a culture. All those things are true. We can look at those historically. But the one that should pierce us more than any of those is that the gospel came to America and the Americans turned it into a business. Our hope is that the gospel is in the gospel of Jesus and we should be careful when we turn that in to an adjective for the sake of bartering. For the sake of having something that we sell wholesale. Having something that is cheap and trite. Because this gospel is not that. Stand firm in the Lord. Our Christianity is different than Christendom in that we, as followers of Jesus, are called to say we have a king and that king is good and I'm going to align my life with him in such a way that it's going to put me in places where I have to stand firm what does stand firm look like for you? What does stand firm look like in this passage? How do we see it flesh out? This is about us having this constant faith, but it's not just about a constant faith. It's about a constant allegiance to this Jesus who is our Lord. And if Jesus is our Lord, that means that Caesar is not. You could not unite these two things. They were not a tag team no more than America and Jesus are a tag team. Jesus is Lord, and nothing else is. 
God and country, and the idea of that and the way that it's communicated far too often contradicts the teaching that Jesus is Lord. Because we have elevated something to a place that it should not have. Jesus is Lord. You got this chapter and you're dealing with these people that are a real church with real problems, with major issues. And while we remain in Jesus, standing firm in Him, we are to remember what unifies. And Paul deals with this on what we would consider a super low level. In verse 2, when he deals with these two ladies. I urge Yodia and I urge Senteca to agree in the Lord. Evidently, these ladies are in some type of fight. They are in a disagreement about something that has taken place in the church. And it has shut things down in a sense, for the church at Philippi. They've decided not to attend Bible study. They've decided not to attend prayer group. They has, As they have processed their frustration with one another, they're not replying to one another's text messages if the Bible had text messages. They are ghosting each other. They have shut their relationship with one another down. And Paul is saying, this is the dumbest thing ever. Could you just get it together? I urge you to come together. He's calling names, and as the kids say, he's brought receipts. These two ladies are the problem. Let's fix this. He's talking about intimate relationships, real relationships. Now, whenever we read the situation of two believers coming to the place where they have separated from one another, where they would walk away from the faith, our immediate response, which is unhealthy really, is to say, you know what, they probably just didn't believe what we believed. They probably got caught up in the emotion of that beautiful name song and their hands were in the air. But when the rubber hit the road, as if the rubber hits anything else, when, when everything got bad, they walked away. They just tapped out. They weren't really, really into it. This was a side business for them. The thing is, Paul deals with that. He lets us know that these ladies are in. But they've let their personal differences with one another cause them to step out. I urge you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. The word translates battle. They have fought alongside of us. They were in. They were fully invested. Deeply invested. And they need to figure this out. And while I've not been called to address the church at Philippi, I've been called to address this church. If there is something taking place in your relationship with another person in this room, figure it out. Deal with it. Get to the bottom of it. Return a text message. Eat a tortilla chip. All we do in this city is eat tortilla chips with one another. Be together and figure it out. Work it out. Work it out. I, he says that they labored together. Let's not dismiss someone because we have differences. I want everything to be like the New Testament church. Well, the New Testament church was working it out. Don't dismiss that. Rejoice in the Lord is the next thing you see in this passage. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Paul is saying to this church that has chosen to have division and chosen to have misunderstanding of one another, 
Hey, you were warriors side by side with me for the sake of this Christian teaching and for the sake of this resurrected Messiah. So stop rejoicing in anything else. Rejoicing in your misery. Rejoicing in your sullenness. Rejoicing in your sadness. Because that's kind of what we do in this distorted world that we live in. That's where we get the idea of a pity party. And it seems that these two ladies, and honestly, it can seem like many of us can throw pity parties for ourselves and rejoice in the wrong things. Rejoice in the Lord. And rejoicing in the Lord means that you work it out. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Here's what you see as you, as you look through the word rejoice in the New Testament. First, you see it's used in lots of different ways. In Luke chapter 15, you get the three stories of the lost stuff. The, the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. It's a word that's used there. <coughs> we rejoice when we find lost stuff. It's also used to talk about God's rewards. We rejoice in the rewards that God has given us. It's used to talk about the miracles. We should find joy over and over in the miracles of Jesus. It's a word that's used at the birth of Jesus. And it's the word that's used in John chapter 20 in the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Rejoicing is this outward thing. But for us, rejoicing is an inward thing. We've made it about our quiet time if we get to that. We've made it something that we consider when we drive down the road and wrestle with our own sullenness. I should rejoice in the Lord. And it definitely carries the idea of an inward thing, but it's more than that. In this world where Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, which existed in the world of Rome, to rejoice meant to outwardly celebrate. That's the thing about new king coming in and taking over your area. When the Caesar would come in, he would ask you to rejoice in him. You would celebrate the Rome, you would celebrate your ideas, but you would also celebrate Caesar. They would have parties, they would have festivals, Mardi Gras type festivals that were based around the worship of Caesar. You celebrated Caesar. And Paul is saying to this church, rejoice not in that, but rejoice in the Lord. Celebrate the Lord. Celebrate his goodness. Celebrate his resurrection. Celebrate his truth. Celebrate his hope. Celebrate his victory. And celebrate not inwardly while you're in your Toyota Corolla cruising down the road at 32 miles an hour. Celebrate wholeheartedly. Not just when you've got your cane's chicken fingers while you're driving from one place to the next. Celebrate outwardly. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, I will say it again, rejoice. Celebrating Jesus as Lord and king encourages and strengthens loyalty and obedience in life. How often do you look at the life of someone who really outwardly celebrates the Lord and you're drawn to it? How often in my own life do I see this faux Christianity if I'm not careful? Fake Christianity. Sullen Christianity. Rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 5, let your graciousness be known to everyone because the Lord is near. That nearness is a huge part of the New Testament. His nearness is God's permission for us to celebrate or rejoice in the Lord. His nearness should help us to be reasonable, to rejoice in the Lord. All counterpoints toward the idea of an occupied people dealing with the, the Roman government invading Celebrate because his nearness and his trusting therein meets you in the middle of your anxiety. 
Celebrate his nearness. The word graciousness there is what my translation reads. There are other words that are used in various translations. All of them are reasonable and and make sense. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Let your gentleness be known to all. Graciousness, reason, gentleness. What huge words for us to consider in our current cultural climate. That the people of God in the midst of a world that, is, that seems to not believe in this God would function differently than the world. That we would choose to interact with our world in a different way. That we would not reply with rage. Graciousness is what we're called to. But we see aggression pushed forward. Reason is what we're called to. But we see people who celebrate wrath. Gentleness is what we're called to. But we see people who revel in fury. Over and over you see in this text that we are God's people by God's design who are meant to interact in a unique way because of who Jesus is. Yet we have chosen the patterns of Rome and we have chosen the patterns of, honestly, Twitter And we have chosen the patterns of our Facebook feed. And we have believed that our debates, that we're going to win one for God if we just argue loud enough. Social media, rage. Politics, rage. All of these things are full of rage. And over and over in the church that claims to belong to Jesus Christ, we see rage. Would we not let that be so? Social media rage, politics rage, and then there's this, the, this Bible that we read and the Savior who stands in the midst of it. Think about the irony. We're told that the kingdom is forcefully advancing and the, and the forceful advancement of the kingdom is seen in gracious, gentle patience, not aggression and debate. When we read through Revelation chapter 5, we, we see that John... The Revelator, which is one of my favorite things to refer to him as because it sounds like a professional wrestler. He says this. As they're they're anticipating the one who would undo the scrolls. Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and see its seven seals. So we hear the idea of a lion, a powerful lion, a ferocious lion, a lion that will mangle, a lion that will destroy, a lion that will do lion things, eating meat and destroying its enemies. We're looking for Simba. We're looking for Mufasa. We're looking, ooh, say it again. We're looking for Aslan. But we stop reading there. Verse 6. When John actually looked, he was told a lion was coming. And he saw a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. The conquering king, who is definitely a lion, presents himself as a lamb. Hear me, friends. You don't have to win fights for Jesus. He won. He won. The word that is translated gentleness, graciousness, and reasonableness 
that's to be part of the church's reputation. Do you think holistically the church is understood to be gracious, reasonable, and gentle in our current cultural situation? His nearness for Paul and his teachings, this is the, the idea of the frontlet that's central. If, if you're Jewish, you're taught from very early on what's called the Shema, and you're to teach these things when you go to bed and when you get up, when you... Everything It's to be centered. It's central to who you are. To love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the Jewish people have these frontlets. It's a little box. And, and they're tied to someone's wrist. Especially for the Orthodox Jews, you would see it tied to their wrist. They were holding a box. There was one on their head. It looked like a fidget cube from afar. And then I noticed, like, they're, they're doing something with that. It's much more than that. It's tied to this Old Testament teaching in the book of Deuteronomy. And the front leg was something that you would wear here. You would hold here after it's tied to your wrist. And you would wear it when it's tied to your head. And it's this reminder for the Jewish people, hey, wherever you go, I'm there. It would have scriptures inside of it. Wherever you go, I'm there. Paul, taking this Old Testament truth that he's familiar with, internalizes it. We don't have laws on the outside because of this new king that we have. We have laws written on us. Wherever you go, he's there. Wherever you go, he's there. I, I don't know if God winces, but I wonder how often, like if he did, he would wince at the thought of my stupidity in interacting with someone that I'm disagreeing with. I don't know how often recently I've had to text someone and do a follow-up conversation. Say, hey, I, I was out of line there. We're reminded in this passage that we are to be God's people putting forth the message of Jesus. But what if they're wrong? What? You're not the one who makes them right. And if our great concern is rightness and not righteousness, then we're wrong. We're wrong. What, what am I supposed to do? I, I mean, I, I get it. Frontlets and Mufasa and all that. How am I supposed to react to everything? How am I supposed to react to the fact that they just keep posting those dumb things I don't agree with? How am I supposed to react? when, like, I, I mean, I get that they're scientists, but I don't agree that they're scientists. How am I supposed to react when people are being mean to me? Verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Bobby McFerrin. Fully agree with this. Don't worry about anything. Be happy. That's a very dated reference. And I appreciate the three of you who got it. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... Present your requests to God. At the heart of this text, Paul's really dealing with worry and anxiety and fear. A little bit of a... Just, teenagers in 2021 are more anxious than they've ever been. In research done in 2019, 82% of teenagers believe that they are moderately to extremely stressed. That was before we were in the midst of a pandemic. 
the idea of FOMO. Anyone know what that is? Fear of missing out. It resonates in our hearts. Not just in teenage boys and teenage girls, but in middle-aged me. And whatever age you are. There's the idea that we're going to be excluded. It's not just teenagers. One pastor points out that he was having a conversation with a sweet little senior adult in his church. Senior adults are like 110. And as he's having this conversation with this sweet little lady, she says, you know, I don't really worry about being dead. I worry about how I'm going to get there. Anxiety is something that creeps into us. I, I, I'm, they're not alone, young people and old people. Middle people like me. Well, Hope tells me I'm old, but I like to think that I'm in the middle. I worry about things all the time. I worry about the fact that my family is regularly in a vehicle that weighs whatever that van weighs, and they're moving rapidly down the street. I, I worry about I worry about health. I worry about cancer because it's kind of in my family. I worry about the world that we live in. I worry. Well, what's Paul saying when he says, don't worry about anything? We're in a unique situation globally as well. Because when we begin to look around the world that we live in, um, you and I will be considered the most affluent people in the world. Now, you may not think you're affluent, but if you've got meals provided, meaning that you don't wonder what you're going to eat, you wonder when, you're affluent. If you've got clothes on your back, you're affluent. If you've got more clothes in your closet, you're super affluent. We are the wealthiest people in the world. However, when we look at first world countries like the United States and Japan and compare them with non-first world countries, here's what we see. Anxiety is more prevalent in the first world countries than it is third world countries. Why is that? Paul says don't worry about anything. It doesn't mean that you just dismiss it. It means that you deal with it. You run toward it. And you run toward it with a light in your hand. In everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. In everything with prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. The three enemies that we see historically in the church that we deal with, the world, the flesh, and the devil, run toward those things with light in your hand, knowing that God has dealt with everything. We deal with the, the problems that we will face as followers of Jesus knowing that He has won a victory that we could not. The idea of anxiety is not something that we push to the side. Uh, I, maybe you're a person... So, let's just be truthful. In every couple, not every couple, but most couples, there's one of you who's kind of super clean and one of you who's me. So, just so we can acknowledge it, if you're the super clean person in your house, could you raise your hand? Okay, if you're me or like me, could you raise your hand? No, look at you. We're going to have a club, small group Bible study. Don't bring anything with you, you'll leave it behind. (laughs) 
Hope had my car detailed one year. And that's a lot. Because, you know, I'm the person who, okay, I've got my stuff. Stuff's right here. I'll know where it's at. It's right here. She took my car to get it detailed. <coughs> it was a, su- a surprise to me. And a surprise to the guy detailing it, I'm sure. sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. And he bagged everything up. Like all the stuff. And he put it out of sight. You got in my sweet, sweet Honda Accord. The passenger seat was super clean. The floorboard was super clean. It was shampooed. It was vacuumed. They'd wiped it down really well. There was like wax on this thing. The car, not the seats. That'd be awkward. Back seats clean. Vacuumed out the child seats. <clears throat> then I opened the trunk. And all of the stuff that I had put to the side was right there. That he had put to the side. It had to be dealt with. Look, when we see don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, what Paul is saying to us is not dismiss these things. It's deal with it. Deal with it. And the And when we deal with it by the power of Christ, the victory of Jesus, that which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and it's going to guard your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying we're supposed to pray about everything, just like M.C. Hammer taught some of us. We're to pray about serious things, those lists that we go off. God, I need you to act. I need you to move. God, I need you to heal. God, I need you to do this begging God. What about the not-so-serious matters? I read this and I love it. What if God reminds us to pray about everything so that we can actually hear how silly some things sound? Talk to me and remind yourself of these things. That's how he closes. Finally, brothers, after you have dealt with these things, as you deal with these things, remind yourself of this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Now, again, if you're a child of the 90s or the early noughts, The word whatever is a dismissive term. It's a term that we use when Kurt Cobain sang about it. It's a term that we're familiar with because Alicia Silverstone taught us in Clueless that we should throw up the W. I think I hurt myself. It's a passage. It's a word that we use to push things out. That's not how it's used here. It's different. It's inclusive. It's you attack all of those things that bring fear and anxiety and hurt and pain. All of those things that cause you to walk with trepidation. You attack those things with truth, 
with things that are honorable, with things that are just, with things that are pure, with things that are lovely. You attack those things with things that are commendable. You deal with your stuff not by dismissing, but by realizing the actual weapons that God has given you. Taking in the goodness of God. Don't dismiss what's horrible. Deconstruct those horrible things through the lens of what is good, noble, and pure. So, are we going to war with things that are true? Or are we going to war with things that are false? Are we going to war with nobility? Or are we going to war with vulgarity and profanity? Are we going to war with the right and righteousness of Jesus? Or are we going to war with wrong and incorrectness? Are we going to war with purity? Or are we going to war with polluted ideas? Are we choosing lovely or are we choosing ugly? Are we choosing admirable or are we choosing inferior? Go to war with the right things. The war that God has called us to, to deal with our own souls. And to see that he's called us to that by the power of his spirit. All these words have the greater good of the other person in mind. Taking it all in. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Since Paul has commended the church to follow his example and has given the church clear direction as to how to handle their issue, their dispute, he sees that we are called, he tells us to commit to resolving disputes in a godly manner as soon as possible, nipping it in the bud, standing firm. Are we firm standing people who are rejoicing in the good works of Jesus, taking in all of the light that God has shown us? Shepard and I had a fun trip this week. It was a quick trip. He turned 13. We went to Universal Studios. And when we got there, I realized this is the difference in the two of us. Shepard is one who, or me rather, I'm one who I move, if you don't know, Shepard's my oldest son. He turned 13. This is the way we celebrated his 13th birthday. Like a bar mitzvah or his... Whatever. So we're there. We're going through the park. And here's what I'm thinking as I walk through any theme park. I want to ride that thing as fast as I can and ride that thing. And I'm going to the next thing. I know it's going to make my insides feel outsides and my upsides feel down. But I'm still going to do it. I know that I'm 43 and this is probably not good for my vertigo. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to ride everything they let me ride. At one point he stops me and he looks at me. He says, Dad... I just want to take it all in. I just want to take it all in. Friends, we as people who've been called to live the life that we were created for in Christ Jesus, what if through the light that God has given us in His Son, we took it all in? What if we noticed this world that surrounds us that is full of darkness and despair and when we interacted with it, we interacted with it as people who have seen and known light and known truth. Who've known purity and rightness and admirable things and known lovely things. What if we really were an inversion of the culture that we live in? Showing Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible... And not the Jesus who looks like everybody else. Taking it all in with Jesus and his cross and resurrection in mind. Let me pray for us this morning. Your heads are bowed.
Look, if you've never trusted Jesus, I, I believe that God does use gatherings like this to call you to Himself. And I would love for you to place your faith and your hope in Jesus. Maybe you've seen the, the darkness and despair that society seems to be reveling in and you want to celebrate something else. Maybe God is calling you to stand firm in Him. If that's you and you want to trust Christ, I would encourage you to, to think through what that means. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. I, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to set up a time for us to follow up about your relationship with Jesus. What it means for you to have that. What it means for you to know that. What it means for you to live in celebration of that. It, here's another thing I know. I look around this room and I see my people. People that I spend every Sunday with people that I love and care for I would pray that we we as a church Grace Bible in the same way that you see the church at Philippi that we would let the words of Paul deal with us are you rejoicing in the wrong things are you allowing disputes and disagreements to separate you? We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is powerful and true. And I pray that all of that will shine light through our everyday lives. Living as a reflection of you. And not a reflection of the society that we live in. Trusting the uniqueness of Jesus to our current situation. We ask this in your powerful name, Christ.